turn with me one last time to the book of Jonah. We're finishing our series called Mighty Mercy. It's been a four-part series, a four-week series in this book, celebrating God's mighty mercy and His heart for mission that we see in His mercy. As I was preparing the message this morning, it was actually hard. There's a ton of stuff. I mean, a ton of stuff in chapter 4. It's only 11 verses. It's narrative verses, so you'd kind of think, oh, we can hit that in one sermon. And I feel like there's so much stuff that ended up on the cutting floor that we're not going to get to. And so in some ways, I was a little crestfallen that we didn't take more time in Jonah, but trust that God is going to feed us this morning with what we will see in this passage. So before we start, I want to begin with a word of prayer. So you can bow your heads with me. Lord, we saw last week and we remembered last week that your mercy surrounds us everywhere we look. The fact that we are here this morning and we can inhale and have air in our lungs and that our lungs do what they're supposed to do with that oxygen and sending it into our, into our blood to keep us alive, that, that's an expression of your grace, of your sustaining grace in our lives. You reign and you do as you please and you uphold all of us in this room and this entire world by the word of your power. But your grace doesn't end there. You have also condescended to reveal yourself to us. And even though you are infinite, even though your ways are unsearchable, as an expression of your kindness, you reveal yourself to us in a way that we can understand. And you do that especially, Lord, by the revelation of your word in Scripture and by your Holy Spirit's work in making your word plain to us, in taking your word and making it alive to our hearts. These verses we're going to read are your words, God. They are inspired by your Spirit. And so now we ask, we plead for more grace this morning, grace that you are glad to give. You would send your Spirit, reveal the God of this book to us, reveal the God who is gracious and compassionate, who is merciful. Let us see it. And most of all, God, let us see and have happen what you desire to have happen in chapter 4, that as we see you, as we comprehend you in all your compassion and mercy and heart for the nations, that you would change us to look like you, to reflect you, to love you and to love others like you. And we ask this with the utmost confidence. Because of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're in Jonah 4. And so it's been a little bit of a, a whirlwind, just four weeks. And I know some of you had Memorial Day and some vacations there. So I want to take a moment this morning, just by way of overview, to kind of give a real quick bird's eye synopsis of where we've been so far in the book. If you remember, you go back to Jonah 1. We read the word of the, the, word of the Lord comes to Jonah. Jonah is this prophet. He had this cherry gig. Remember, he got to go to Israel, even though Israel was sinful, and proclaim to them good news that God was going to deliver them. Not something prophets typically get to do. Well, the, the word comes a second time, right? That's where Jonah starts. And Jonah's called to go to Nineveh, to Sin City of the ancient Near East. And we all know the story. Jonah, instead of going east, flees west. He goes down to Joppa. He goes down into the boat. He goes down into the bottom of the boat in the middle of the storm, trying to flee to Tarshish. And God, Jonah says, appointed a great fish. And the fish comes. They throw Jonah overboard to save their lives. The sailors 
these pagans are saved, and the fish swallows Jonah. Jonah 2 all happens in the belly of that fish, right? So Jonah says, throw me overboard, let me die, so you'll be saved. He's kind of given up on life, given up on his calling as a prophet. He gets swallowed by the fish. He's taken down to the depths three days and three nights until he's at the point of being almost dead. His life is fainting from him. And then he calls out to God. And God delivers him. And Jonah 2 ends with that famous verse, salvation belongs to the Lord. That declaration from Jonah. And it's a preview of chapter 3, where we were last week. Jonah gets vomited up onto dry land by the fish, and the word of the Lord comes to Jonah a second time. And this time Jonah obeys. And he goes to Nineveh, the capital city of Assyria, this superpower in the ancient world, this evil, violent empire, do horrible things to their enemies. They're Israel's neighbor to the north. So Jonah, fresh out of the belly, goes 600 miles, comes to Nineveh, and preaches that they must repent or be destroyed. Specifically, that they'll be destroyed in 40 days. And an amazing thing happens. An entire city hears the Word of God and through the power of the Word of God responds. Through the power of the Spirit making their hearts alive, they believe and they repent. So we see that Read 3, verse 10, and we'll read the rest of chapter 4. That's where we are this morning. When God saw what they did, how they, the Ninevites, turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them, and He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it's better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die, and said, It is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, Yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? What we see in chapter 4 is that God's mighty mercy that we've been talking about through this whole book is not just for us, It's also for them. It's not just for us. It's also for, quote, them. 
the author of Jonah wants to drive this point home in concluding and taking this chapter, this concluding chapter, and he gives us a dialogue. It's actually in some ways more of a debate between God and Jonah. And so the prophet hurls his frustrations at God and God responds in a very interestingly, intentionally personal way. We're going to see three points this morning. Just trace our way through the narrative. We're going to see Jonah's defiance. And we're going to see God's lesson. And then we're going to conclude by just looking at God's final question. The climactic statement of the book. So first, we see Jonah's defiance. In Jonah 3.10, when God saw what they, the Ninevites did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that He had said He would do to them. And He did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly. And he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that You are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, relenting from disaster. Now, before we read one, you're kind of thinking, if you don't know how the story ends, it seems like Jonah's finally come around. It seems like he's finally figured it out. It took a lot. It took a storm. It took almost dying. It took being cast into a sea that's essentially just tumultuous with waves crashing on his head. It took a stinking huge fish to swallow him and take him to the deep. But finally, he gets it. He cries out to God. He gets delivered. And he finally goes to Nineveh with the message. And they get saved. And then you read verse 1. Verse 1 actually tells us a ton about the state of Jonah's heart. The Hebrew could literally be translated, not just that it displeased Jonah, but you could literally translate it, it was exceedingly evil to Jonah. That's the word that's used. It was exceedingly evil. It's a word that the author has used probably about ten times throughout the book. And he uses that, which oftentimes is translated displeased, to indicate moral deficiency. So here's what's going on. Most of the time you see this word in the Old Testament and it's actually preceded by the phrase, they did evil in the sight of the Lord. You familiar with that phrase? So it's actually this sense of, it's a subjective sense of someone is looking at something that's done and determining whether that was right or wrong. But when you tag that with, they did evil in the sight of the Lord, it's no longer subjective, is it? Now God, who determines right and wrong, looks at an action and says, that is evil because it's evil. It's against my character. So, so think of what Jonah's doing here. See the twistedness of his attitude? The measure of what is evil should be God's evaluation. But here Jonah deems that what God has done, what God has done, is displeasing, is exceedingly evil. Nineveh, Sin City, is now in step with God's character after repenting. But Jonah, the prophet, God's mouthpiece, is out of step. You could almost read into it, God and Nineveh did what was evil in the sight of Jonah. Think about that. It's the only time in the book that the adjective exceedingly is added to evil. The only time. Nineveh's evil doesn't get described that way. The evil that happens on the ship doesn't get described that way. 
Jonah fleeing, doesn't get described that way. When, when the king of Nineveh calls for them to repent and says, we have done violence, we need to turn from our evil, he, he just calls it evil. And now here, Jonah describes repentance and compassion as exceedingly evil. He's so consumed with selfishness that even God's own actions become immoral to him. But Jonah doesn't just disapprove. He actually burns with anger. He's not just a little frustrated. He's fuming. His anger is consuming his heart. It's this sense of him boiling with rage. The word that's used for burn with anger is this sense of there's like kindling set to wood. And it's just, it's just spreading. It's just spreading through his whole heart and through his whole countenance. The anger just fills him. It's really one of the most tragic ironies in all of Scripture. Think about this. A prophet brings a message of impending judgment. The people he preaches to respond to the message and turn to God in repentance. And the prophet now throws a hissy fit. It's not supposed to go that way. Once again, Jonah surprises us in a sad sort of way. And when we read then, verse 2, we see the chilling defiance that explains Jonah's actions throughout the entire book. He says, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. He's making excuses. You want to know why I fled? You want to know why I took off from your presence? Well, I sort of had to, because I knew. It's an accusation. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful. I knew you were going to be slow to anger. I knew you were abounding in steadfast love. I knew you were going to relent from disaster. You weren't going to wipe them off the face of the earth. I knew I would put my finger to dropping the atomic bomb and you'd take my finger away. Jonah didn't flee because he was scared. You kind of want to think that in chapter 1, right? Maybe it's just because he has to go to Nineveh and it's a superpower and he doesn't want to go before the emperor and and say horrible things about the emperor. No. It's because he knew the nature of God. He actually here quotes one of the most famous passages in the entire Old Testament. It's Exodus 34, verse 6. And it's a, it's a famous passage, and it sounds familiar to us because that passage in Exodus 34 then gets picked up and repeated throughout the Old Testament. It's this, it's this quick kind of shorthand for who is the God of Israel? He is a God gracious and merciful. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love. So Jonah actually quotes it. He, he alludes to it. And the context of Exodus 34 is Moses goes up on Sinai for the second time. He's already gotten the law. He comes down. And what's happening? Israel's worshiping a stinking golden calf. God is in all His glory on the mountain in front of them, and they're worshiping a cow. And God actually says, I'll wipe them all out. And I'll start afresh with you, Moses. And Moses intercedes and says, no, don't do it. Spare this people. And before Israel repents, before they repent, God describes Himself in this way. He says, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children 
and the children's children to the third and fourth generations. Now, do you notice the difference between Exodus 34 and our passage? Jonah quotes it very selectively, doesn't he? In his fuming over God's compassionate character, he completely ignores the second half that describes God's justice. Jonah's not just frustrated that God is merciful. He's actually accusing God of being unjust, of being unrighteous. Essentially, Jonah says that God is soft on sin. Think about that for a second. Think of politicians and you have the, the ads that go on TV and, oh, that guy's soft on crime. Well, Jonah says God, the Holy One of Israel, is soft on sin. And then Jonah's temper tantrum just gets silly. He, he claims he would rather die. I, I want to be dead. I'd rather be dead than, than have to watch this. You see, I'd rather have this grace just removed from my... I, I would rather never see anything. I would rather have no more breath in my lungs than actually have to watch grace happen before my eyes. This, this compassionate stuff is just... Ugh, just kill me. Spare me from it. His heart is so poisoned against Nineveh that it's become poisoned against God. I'd rather experience exactly what I prayed for you to deliver me from in the belly of the fish than live and watch this anymore. Part of the reason why Jonah is mad is because he's the message bearer. He knows he brought the message to Nineveh and the fact that God has shown compassion and has shown mercy is going to get connected to him. That's part of what makes him mad. I wanted to bring this message and I wanted you to drop the hammer on Nineveh. And now you're getting all soft on me. And you're forgiving them. And they're going to think I'm soft. They're going to think I'm gracious. They're going to think I'm compassionate. And I am not. I am a righteous Jew. That's what's going on. I don't want to be associated with this. Just kill me. It reminds me of a scene from my favorite novel. You probably know what I'm going to reference. Lay Miz, you probably know the character I'm thinking of, Javert. At the end of the book, and hopefully you've read the book and not just gone to the musical or seen the movie, but at the end of the book, there's been this, this <laughs> over a thousand page description of Javert as the foil of Jean Valjean. And Javert is this man with this ironclad sense of justice. And black and white, right and wrong. And God is a God of justice. And so Jean Valjean must be pursued. And he must be captured. He must be brought to his knees. And he must be brought to justice. Because Jean Valjean, who was once a criminal, will always be a criminal. Is incapable of change. At the end of the book, Javert witnesses Jean Valjean save his life and spare him from the rebels. And still he pursues Jean Valjean, and then he witnesses Jean Valjean emerge from a sewer carrying the almost dead body of Marius. And Javert looks at him, and he actually goes with Jean Valjean to, to drop Marius off at his house. And, and Victor Hugo describes just this inner turmoil in Javert. How is this possible? This is a criminal. How is he doing what is right? final scene that we see of Javert is he's pacing on a bridge. 
He's pacing on a bridge, and his entire worldview has just collapsed into a heap. A man with an ironclad sense of justice simply cannot come to grips with the power of grace. His whole vision of God has been thwarted. That God would be both just and compassionate. And it so destroys his perspective that Javert climbs up on the bridge and he jumps to his death. That's similar to what's happening with Jonah. I would rather be dead than have to reconsider who I think you should be, God. I don't know if Jonah's braver or more cowardly than Javert. He's not willing to kill himself. He asks God to do it. I don't know what that means. But in his heart, Jonah is this xenophobic racist. He fears and despises the other. The other people. The different people. The non-Israelites. He's grateful when he gets grace, right? We've seen that multiple times in the story. When Jonah gets grace... He's grateful. He prays. He does what he's supposed to do. He's happy to deliver grace to the courts of Israel, even though they're sinful. So even during the reign of Jeroboam II, this evil king of Israel, Jonah's happy to bring a message of grace to that sinful people, right? But now here we see, when grace gets extended to them, to the other, turns his stomach. It's actually... Shortly after Han and I arrived down in Kansas, we went to a concert. Um, I think it was over in Topeka, maybe. We went to the concert, and on our way to the concert, as we were pulling into the parking lot of the event center, there was a group of people holding signs. You maybe even know where this is going. There were a group of people that were associated with a man named Fred Phelps, a pastor who doesn't live too far away from here. And the signs proclaimed messages like God hates fags God hates America and just spewing hatred not at a gay pride parade at a bunch of other Christians coming to a Christian concert that's the sort of thing that's going on in Jonah's heart this just vile hatred is Nineveh wicked? yes Nineveh is deplorable. They do evil things. They celebrate sin like it is right. But Jonah should have compassion on them in their lostness. He shouldn't hate them. What we see with with people like the followers of Fred Phelps is a modern example of Jonah when confronted with people utterly lost in their sin, consumed by their depravity, rather than proclaiming to them the gospel, the good news that Jesus saves, that He can change them, they spew hatred. That's what Jonah's doing. Essentially, Jonah says, I knew I couldn't trust God to be unmerciful. I knew he wasn't going to be unmerciful. And so then God, God's grace is just amazing in this book. I mean, it's like this is like the tenth time that God should just flatten Jonah. 
kind of brush him off his hand like you would a mosquito. Done with you. Instead, God asks Jonah a question to help him diagnose his heart. Do you do well to be angry? Hold on, Jonah. Look inside. Consider what's going on in your soul. Is this right? What does Jonah say? Not a word. Jonah doesn't respond. He ignores God. And then, in reaction to the arrogance of Jonah, God responds with more grace. That's our second point. God brings a lesson. A very strategic, particular, personal lesson to the prophet to show him the danger and error of his thinking. So let's look now at God's lesson. Verse 5, it says, Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. I'm just going to pause before we go further. This is just another one. Of the, the, the author is just, it's really cool how he uses language. The word booth is actually the word that gets, gets translated. There's a festival of booths that the, the Hebrew people would use to celebrate their time in the wilderness. So they would create these booths and everyone would spend a week in the booths and celebrate the fact that, that God was with them in the wilderness and that He tabernacled with them. And the word booth is meant to represent the fact that God came and dwelt with His people. So here's Jonah going outside the city saying, I'm not going to hang out in the city with them. I'm going to go out and build myself a little hut and be by myself in sort of this ironic construction of a place where God's Spirit is supposed to be. That's what I'm going to go do. I'm going to leave Nineveh and go sit in my little booth. Be mad at God, but at the same time, sit in a booth meant to represent the fact that He's with His people and He delivers His people. It was cool when God delivered us from Egypt, saved us in the wilderness. Not cool that He's not going to nuke Nineveh. Sorry, aside over. He sat under it in the shade till He, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly, that word again, exceedingly glad because of the plant. So Jonah goes to pout beyond the city walls. He's acting like a three-year-old. Hmm, I'm going to go and sit outside and pout and stick my lip out and build my booth. I'm going to go wait and see if this repentance is real. And the sense we get is that Jonah is hoping. Maybe this isn't the end of the story. Maybe Nineveh hasn't really changed. Maybe they'll revert back. And maybe then when they revert back, God will still crush them. The prophet is hoping. He's hoping, think about this, for disobedience. He builds himself a little hut, goes and sits in the shade while he anticipates Nineveh going the way of Sodom and Gomorrah. And then God extends another kindness. He appoints a plant. Now that word has been used strategically. We'll talk about it here in a second. He appoints a plant to be his shade. But it's much more than that. It says God appoints the plant, what? To save Jonah from his discomfort. Now what you don't see in the English is that the word discomfort is the same word in Hebrew as the word for Jonah being displeased as the same word for evil that gets translated at other, at other places in the book. So there's a double meaning here. It's a play on words. 
the plant isn't just keeping the sun off of Jonah's head. I like to picture Jonah as bald, just to imagine that it's really a big deal that he's got shade. Maybe he wasn't. The plant isn't just keeping the sun off his head. It's an object lesson that God will use this plant to save Jonah from his discomfort. Double meaning being to save Jonah from himself, from the hatred that's going on in his heart. When Jonah gets the shade, he says he's exceedingly glad. Literally, the Hebrew does this. They combine words together that are actually the same word, just in different forms. And it's that Jonah rejoiced a great joy. He kind of like dances a jig. Yeah, I got a plant, right? It's dripping with irony. The only thing Jonah sees as exceedingly evil in the whole book is God's compassionate forgiveness. And the only thing in the whole book that makes Jonah really deeply happy is a little shade and a little grace extended his way. He's seen an entire city, from the king of that city to the lowest slave of that city, repent and turn to the true and living God. And that brings him no joy. But this little plant in its shade, it makes him very happy. He senses selfishness coming through. Well, Jonah's joy is short-lived. Early the next morning, God appoints a worm to kill the plant. And then God appoints a scorching hot wind to beat down on Jonah's, I like to imagine, bald head. Again, we see God extending the grace of divine discipline. This is like the fish 2.0. God appointed a great fish, right? He appointed the winds that created the great tempest on the sea. Now he appoints a plant and appoints a worm and appoints a huge, hot, scorching east wind. Listen to all the ways that God pursued his prophet. In 1.4, God hurls a great wind upon the sea. In 1.7, the lot falls on Jonah. 1.17, the Lord appoints a great fish. In 3.1, the word of the Lord came a second time to Jonah. God's word pursues Jonah. 4 verse 6, the Lord appoints a plant. 7, He appoints a worm. 8, He appointed a scorching heat wind. Here's the lesson. The Lord has more ways of confronting Jonah than Jonah has of evading him. God's grace is relentless in pursuit of rebels. God's mercy never tires in coming after those who would spurn His grace. He is relentless in pursuing those He desires. And it's more than that. It also underscores again, God does as He pleases. In verse 9 we read, God said to Jonah, again, a question meant to help Jonah navigate the deceitful sin in his heart. Do you do well to be angry for the plant? If God is asking you if you're okay being angry that a plant withered, you think you'd pick up on the fact that, no, you're not. You're stupid. Like, he's showing you, you dummy. No, I get it. Like, I, I realize now that you asked that question, this is pretty foolish. But not Jonah. Yes, I do well to be angry. Angry enough to be die. To die. Would you do it already? Would you flatten me? And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. 
Here's God's point. Jonah had forgotten his place. He was convinced that God should do according to what he, Jonah, desired. But the God of land and sea, remember how that's Jonah's description of God in chapter 1? The God of the sea and the land, the God who appoints great fish and shade plants and worms and mighty east winds, that God, the almighty God and all of His magnificence, that God does as He pleases. And it's a strange reversal when you read this of the struggle we see over God's sovereignty in Romans 9. There, there's a struggle where, where God is presenting through Paul, his inspiration of the Spirit, the nature of his sovereignty and salvation. And the audience wonders, remember? There's that, there's that interlocutor in the text where Paul is anticipating their questions. And they wonder, why doesn't God save more people? Here, Jonah reverses it. And Jonah frets. Why does God save so many? What are you doing? The former question in Romans questions God's justice in not saving everyone. The latter questions God's justice in saving anyone who's not Jewish. And Paul's rebuttal covers both. In 9.14, What then shall we say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Meganoito is the phrase in the, in the Greek. It's like this... No! It's impossible! For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. That sounds a lot like Jonah, doesn't it? The book, not the prophet. Although Jonah says it too. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Verse 19, You will say to me then, Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable? Is God unjust? To save so many, in Jonah's view, is God unjust? Not to save enough, in our view. God doesn't have to save anyone. Who are you to ask the potter, to ask the Creator, to accuse Him? God sits enthroned in the heavens. And he does all that he pleases. Because he is God. And you are not. Listen to a speaker once. He was, he was a very well-known speaker. He actually had an even more well-known father. And he, he spoke on this topic, and it was just tragic what he said. He talked about the fact that he, he had the faith that he had received as a child. And he had come to a point where he just didn't agree with the theology anymore. And so he said, he made up in his mind, I can't believe this theology. It was a very orthodox theology. I can't believe this about God anymore. And so I decided there that I was only going to worship a God that was at least as loving as I was. 
And if God wasn't at least as loving as I was, then I was going to worship a different God. And I was going to, the God I was going to worship was going to love like I loved. Did you hear the arrogance of that? That the God described in these pages, the Creator, the ruler of heaven and earth, that He doesn't know that he doesn't have the right to define what is loving. Well, Jonah's sort of the opposite. I decided my God has to be at least as just as I am. And if he's not as just as I am, well, doggone it, then I want him just to, to kill me. I refuse to worship him. Neither of those positions realize the way they limit God's love and God's justice by attempting to hold him captive to human definitions and human characterizations, human descriptions of what is love and what is justice. You know what's love? God is love according to his own definition, that he would lay down his son, that he would crush him to save sinners. You know what's just? That God, in all his holiness, could have eradicated every person off the face of the earth and manages to meld his love and mercy and justice together in the cross of Christ. That's the definition of love. It's the definition of what is just. But God, knowing Jonah to be one of the densest prophets in all of Scripture, probably realizes Jonah still isn't following the logic. So he spells it out. He asks a final question. Here's our last point. God's question. The Lord said, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left hand and so much cattle? It's a loaded statement. Jonah! you're mourning over the fact that this little plant that didn't even exist two days ago has died. What did you have to do with that plant? Did you create that plant? Did you, did you hold that plant together? Did you cause that plant to photosynthesize at an exponential rate? Did you cause it to grow? Did you overdain or see in a point all that happened to that plant? No, you had nothing to do with it. And it's this little teeny dinky plant. And you want to die because of it? Shouldn't I pity Nineveh? This great city filled with over 120,000 souls that I called into being, that I hold together by the word of my power. Shouldn't I care about what happens to them? And he says, and also much cattle. And you kind of read that the first time, you're like, did you really need to throw the cow in there? <laughs> He's doing it, I think, to kind of bring more conviction to Jonah. Okay, Delbert, you care so much about this plant. I guess I won't just talk about the 120,000 people that might die. I'll talk about their cows. Maybe you'll care more about the cows than you do about the people. Jonah needs God's grace. He needs it as much as the pagan sailors in chapter 1, as much as the Ninevites in chapter 3. 
But the fascinating thing about Jonah is that unlike the pagan sailors and the wicked Ninevites, Jonah is supposed to be one of the good guys, right? He's a prophet. He's moral. He wasn't some pierced and tattooed teenager in rebellion, right? He's the clean-cut preppy kid. He's not some liberal. He's a conservative. Really conservative. He's not godless. He's religious. He speaks for God. In the courts of Israel, Jonah looks impeccable. That's Jonah. That's God's man. He brings the good news. But in the ship, and in the belly, and outside the city, God pulls back the veil, and we see the ickiness of his heart. He's a whitewashed tomb. What's fascinating to me is that not only in the story of Jonah, but throughout the Bible, it's often the immoral person that grasps the gospel of grace before the moral person. Right? The prostitute sees the mightiness of God's mercy because she is aware, I am unclean. And he still does good to me. This Jesus still associates with me. The younger brother grasps the father's heart. I can still go back to him. Before the self-righteous elder brother even grasps that he has need. Grace is only amazing for us as long as we recognize how desperately and constantly we need it. The more aware we are, the more amazed we are. The less aware we are, the less amazed we are. Jonah's problem is he's lost sight of how desperate he is for God's grace. And what's God's grace? It's unmerited favor. Jonah seems to think grace is more like karma. It's earned support. I did the right stuff and now God's bailing me out because He's supposed to. When he prays, he deserves deliverance. When he's not in the belly of the fish type trouble, he just assumes, I don't need grace right now. I'm not getting digested. When God sends him grace, he acts like God is compelled to give it. That is not the Gospel. God helps when we deserve no help. Like Nineveh. And we are way more like Nineveh than we care to admit. God saves when we deserve to perish. God intervenes when the whale should simply digest us all the way through. God acts when He has every right, every right to look away. He engages us when He could easily and rightfully distance Himself from us. Jonah wanted to receive God's grace, but he doesn't want to be changed by it. I want your grace, but I don't want to reflect it. And when he sees people who are changed by God's mercy, the Ninevites, the sailors, he wants to see that same grace removed from them. He wants it taken away. The final question that concludes this whole book isn't just, was it right for God to pity and save sinners? Here's what the question is. Was it right for me to pity you, Jonah? You think you deserve it any more than them? The underlying question that serves as a cliffhanger to this story, it ends in a question mark. There's only one other book in the entire Bible that ends with a question. This is one of them. It ends with that cliffhanger because the author and God is driving home the point. Do you, the reader, the listener, do you 
reflect my heart? Do you look like me in my mercy? God's final question is meant to drive home application. Chapter 4 isn't meant to bring Jonah to the forefront of the climax. It's meant to bring all of us into the climax. Jonah ends with a sharp call for self-examination. Not just for the prophet. The whole literary device the author is using is to make everyone who reads it sit and read that question and wonder, do I reflect this God? Do I look like Him? A one-dimensional view of God, and God is not one-dimensional, that views God as all justice, and God is just. But a one-dimensional view that views Him as only just creates unbalanced people who gladly proclaim wrath. And when they hear sermons about wrath, Amen! Come up to the preacher afterwards. That was good. You laid it hard. They love that. They, they hear about judgment. And it's wonderful. It's easy to hear that. But they stumble at forgiveness. The things they preach and sing and celebrate aren't not true about God. Did you catch what I'm saying there? It's not that the things they love aren't true. They are true aspects of God's character. But they're not the whole truth about God. There's more to Him. He's infinitely multifaceted. And in this way, they become like Jonah, so right and yet so wrong. And when confronted with God's actual character in all its glorious breadth and balance, from His justice to His mercy, from His love to His wrath, all not held opposite of each other, but in perfect harmony with each other, as they're confronted with that, they don't like what they see. Which is really to say, they don't like the picture of Jesus. John Stott said this, All around us we see Christians and churches relaxing their grasp on the Gospel. Fumbling it. And in danger of letting it drop from their hands altogether. That's a great quote. And I think when you come to Jonah, you ask, how can we tell if we're fumbling the Gospel? If you're fumbling the necessary, inevitable theological implication, the application that the God who saves sends the people He has saved out as ambassadors of that salvation. I have saved you. I have saved you to now reflect Me, to proclaim Me, to tell about this God who saves. The final question is whether we reflect the character of our God, which is another way of asking, are we, quote, on mission? Do we really despise the lost? Do we merely despise the lost? Or do we mourn for them? But think of it this way. Do you love people who are different than you? Do you approach guests on a Sunday morning that are very clearly from a different demographic than you are? Are you as quick to introduce yourself? As quick to invite them out for lunch? Do you invite the other to your care group as quickly as the couple or family that's the mirror image of you? God's mission is centered in His glory. 
God's mission is centered in His glory. He sends Jonah out to Nineveh. Why? To save them, yes. But because in saving them, the glory of His name will extend to a new people. The glory of this God who saves. A God who is gracious and merciful. A God who is abounding in steadfast love. He's slow to anger. He relents from disaster. Have you heard of this God? We deserve to perish. And He saved us. God is on mission for His glory. And He is sending providence out into this city, Kansas City, for the glory of His name. The Ninevites' repentance foreshadows the Great Commission. It's one of the only places, it's maybe the most explicit place in the entire Old Testament where God specifically and intentionally sends one of His people to proclaim a message to a foreign nation and they all get saved. It's this precursor to Jesus' final words. Final words should have final importance. Right before He ascends to heaven, He gives them the charge. Go! Make disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I am with you always, even to the ends of the earth. You know how far you have to go? To the ends of the earth. And that's no big deal. Because I sit enthroned above the heavens. And this is my heavens and my earth. And I go with you to every corner of it. And go and make disciples. Multiply them. Make new disciples. Mature them. Make disciples that love me more deeply. And baptize them. You know what's central to this mission? The church. The church, the book of Acts, Luke Acts, Luke has its own version of the Great Commission. Luke drives home the point. The church is central to this mission. That means you, Providence, the people sitting here that are in partnership and members of this body, you are central to God's mission to save people in this city and to the ends of the earth. Why? So that they don't go to hell. And so that God's name gets massive amounts of glory. He's sending us into Kansas City. 50%, only 50% of Kansas City, Kansas City has 2.1 million people in the metro area. Only 50% even claim religious affiliation. (laughs) Could you have a vaguer term? Religious affiliation? And only half of the 2.1 million people in this city claim something like that. As limp-wristed as that. Only 12% of Johnson County, 12%, 1 out of 10 people, attends an evangelical church where they're likely to hear and celebrate the gospel on Sunday morning. These are your neighbors. These are your co-workers. Maybe your family members. If we are anti-mission, Jonah would have us see, we are anti-God. If we are apathetic to mission, we are apathetic to God. Henry Martin. Remember we talked about Henry Martin a few weeks ago? The missionary to India translated the Bible into Arabic and Urdu and all these languages and he died in the mission field. He said this, The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of missions. The nearer we get to Him, the more intensely missionary we become. He's not talking about certain people getting to be called missionaries. He's saying, if you know Jesus, if you have been saved by His grace, you are a missionary. If you love Him, you should love with a missionary's heart. 
one of the coolest things of the Council of Elders meeting we had a couple weeks ago, the inaugural Council of Elders meetings for the Churches of Sovereign Grace. One of the coolest things is that we had it, we're gathering, it's all these pastors who serve as representatives of all the local churches, so it's these pastors who represent the churches that, that they lead and oversee and rule, and they're gathered together in this council as, as the, the kind of end game, the, the highest level of governance within our, within our family of churches. You know what the very first motion was on the floor? A motion came forward to appoint a committee that once we selected the executive director, he should pull together men to be put on a committee that was to strategically think about what will Sovereign Grace do? How will we engage ourselves in mission? How will we plant churches locally and to the ends of the earth? How will we contextualize the gospel? How will we take the gospel to the nations? That was a holy moment. The first order of business... How do we get on mission with our God and His glory? We don't totally have the answer yet. We're a young family of churches. We're still trying to figure it out. But if God can use Jonah and convert a whole city, I hope He can use us. The reason we get excited about mission when we get near to Jesus is because we get caught up in His person and in His glory. And getting caught up in His glory in person will change you. The opposite character in Les Mis from Javert is Jean Valjean. One of the best scenes in the whole book, the book, is he steals some silver from a priest and he gets caught. And he's on parole, which means now that he's been caught as a second-time offender, he's basically going back to prison for life. And he gets caught and the police, the Germains, bring him back to the church and they throw him in front of the priest and say, we caught the man that stole your silver. And he had stolen it. And the priest, in this amazing action of grace, says, oh no, he didn't steal it. He did. I gave it to him. But my friend, and, and it describes Jean Valjean, he's this criminal, right? And he's just undone. In the same way that Javert is undone. He's undone. His, his whole world begins to crumble. He doesn't know what to do. and He's just kind of swirling. And the priest says, But my friend, you forgot the candlesticks as well. And the priest goes and gets more silver and brings it to him and gives it to him. And as the police walk away, he looks at Jean Valjean and he tells him, This must change you. You must live differently. Because of this moment. That's a synopsis of the book of Jonah. A central change that brings about his desire, an insatiable need to see others, prodigals, Ninevites, neighbors, caught up in the glory and person of Jesus. We didn't just get some stinking candlesticks. We got the Son of Glory. The Holy One of Israel. The incarnate God-man. Go Jonah. Arise, go Jonah. That foreshadows go Jesus. That foreshadows God's heart. Not just to send a prophet who's going to declare, repent, and then God won't destroy you. 
but who's going to send his own son to die so that his mighty mercy can stand in perfect harmony with his mighty justice. And when you encounter that God and you encounter that God-man Jesus, it must change you to taste and to see, to be caught up in His glory. That's what sanctification is. Being more conformed to the person of Christ. I love more deeply what He loves. I love the Father more deeply. I'm more consumed by joy for what brings God glory. And God gets glory when people who don't know Him come to love Him and repent and are saved. In conclusion, if a church does not embrace its role in God's mission, the mission doesn't suffer. Say that again. If a church does not embrace its role in God's mission, the mission doesn't suffer. The church suffers. God's mission to glorify His name by extending the gospel of boundless grace and mighty mercy to all peoples and tribes and tongues, that is inevitable. The God who reigns in heaven does as He pleases. And He has decreed that He will make a people and gather a people for Himself. The mission is inevitable. It will happen. And the universal church's role is central by God's design. All of the New Testament we see, the church is central to the moving forward of that mission, to accomplishing the mission. But when a local church goes off mission, it's not that the mission... It's going to fail. That that church has become dispensable to the obligatory course of history. That God in Christ be glorified through the participation of the body of Christ in missions. That's what happens when you go off mission. You become anti-mission. You become apathetic to mission. It's providence. Let us not be dispensable to God's glory. This mission is mandatory. Would you bow your heads?